So, a couple weeks ago, uh, Greg and I, my husband here, celebrated 12 years of marriage. Yeah. And um, we went to Block Island. We got away together without the kids for two nights, which was incredible. And we were out one night, and we stumbled upon some live music, which we never do. Um, and was, it was really fun. It was a great little band. And about halfway through the set, they um, asked this high school student named Kat to come up and join them on the stage. And Kat is a vocalist, incredibly talented 18-year-old girl on her way to Nashville in the fall for school. So Greg is completely lost in the music. They were so good. And meanwhile, I am completely lost in what she is wearing because you could have pulled that out of my closet when I was in high school in the 90s. She had on Doc Martens, knee socks, a little plaid kilt, and then a vintage t-shirt, little ring neck t-shirt with a random slogan on it. I didn't bring any visuals, mostly to spare myself embarrassment, but I could have recreated that outfit. It was surreal. Later that week, uh, we hosted a birthday party at our house for a friend, and Greg and I are sitting on the deck at the end of this party with a group of people who probably averaged about 10 years younger than us. Uh, some of them were like 15 years younger than us, and they all knew all the lyrics to all my favorite songs from the 90s, including songs from that album up in the corner, the Weezer's Blue album. So it was this surreal experience. I'm in the middle of this throwback week. And then this morning, I get to church, and my friend Sarah is like, oh, guess who I saw last night? I saw New Kids on the Block. <laughs> I'm like, what decade am I in this morning? I'm in the middle of this throwback thing that's happening. And here's the thing about throwbacks. Throwbacks are great for everybody. So throwbacks are great for people like me who lived through the original because for those of us who kind of remember the 90s or the 80s, we have 20 years of music and fashion today, and we see it in a whole new light. We have 20 years of music and fashion experience kind of under our belt, and we actually, I appreciate the 90s more now than I did then. I also remember things I've forgotten, so I can't tell you how fun it is to be out somewhere and to hear a song that I haven't thought about in 20 years but I know all the lyrics. It's amazing. So throwbacks are great for people like me who are seeing the past in a whole new light. Throwbacks are also great for this singer, Kat, and other people like these folks on the deck who are just discovering this precious thing for the first time. And the reason it's great for them is basically we're watching the past come forward and begin to inform our current experience here in 2017. The 90s are beginning to influence fashion and music trends all over again. I bet a lot of you are wearing things like chokers and denim and overalls that we haven't seen in a while. So the past begins to influence the present. Throwbacks are great for everyone. So today we are beginning a new series called Throwback. What ancient stories about snakes, giants, floods, burning bushes and brothers selling brothers into slavery teach us about God, love, and what it means to truly live. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some classic stories from the Old Testament, stories about God's relationship 
with humanity before God sent his son Jesus to be born and live on earth as a human. Scripture tells us that it is Jesus who fully reveals to humanity what God is like. How do we know what God is like? God is like Jesus. But it's not like when Jesus was born, God changed. We sometimes are tempted to think that, that the God of the Old Testament is one way and the God of the New Testament is another way, and that's actually not true. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So if we know today that God is like Jesus, then the truth is God has always looked like Jesus. Even before humanity knew who Jesus was, God looked like Jesus. And so I think as we do this over the next few weeks, we look back at these stories in the Old Testament. I think there's two things that I'm hoping will happen for us. First, kind of like me looking back on the 90s with a fresh perspective, I think we will look back on these stories with fresh eyes. We'll see things in these stories that even the people who wrote them could not have seen. Because for those of us who know Jesus, we'll kind of marvel and wonder at the way that these ancient stories point to Jesus. So that's one thing. And then the second thing, kind of like the way the 90s are beginning to influence today, we will hopefully be able to see how these stories actually can influence our current relationship with God. We will see elements of God's character in these stories that were true then, will be true tomorrow, and are perfectly relevant today to our current relationship with God. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, welcome. We're glad you're here. This is a safe place for you to be. And I hope that these stories will give you kind of like an unexpected perspective on Jesus. So I just, I hope that that is true for you today. So to start us off today, we are throwing it back to the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph's life, it spans 14 chapters of Genesis, from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. So if you zoomed in on every little detail of Joseph's life, you could preach on his life all summer. What I'm going to attempt to do today is zoom out and look at his life from a wide lens and see what does this teach us about God and God's character. So just for a little context, Joseph lived about 2,000 years before Jesus was born. Abraham is his great-grandfather. Abraham's son Isaac is his grandfather. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. You may know those names. They're twins. Jacob, who's also called Israel, is Joseph's father. Jacob had 12 sons and a daughter, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, or the, the, the patriarchs of those tribes. Joseph is the second youngest son, son, so he's number 11 in the birth order, and he's the favorite. So Joseph's life can be broken into three acts, acts one, two, three. I'm going to try to really briefly do the zoom out and tell you his story in three acts. So the first act is childhood. That's the story that we read this morning. Joseph grew up in Canaan, which is the region that is modern-day Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria, that area. And even as a child, Joseph has a strong prophetic gift. 
the Lord speaks to him in dreams, and he has the ability to interpret dreams. But as you can hear in the story that we read, at this point in his life as a teenager, Joseph is kind of a little punk. He's not very mature in how he exercises this gift. So when we train prayer ministers or or teaching people like how to hear words from God, we always say, be careful what you share. Make sure it's beneficial. Maybe preface it with things like, I don't know if this is from God, but I'm getting this sense. Joseph kind of recklessly shares these provocative dreams with his family and is offending everyone all over the place. He's also the favorite son. And he, we didn't read this part, but he's also a tattletale. He tells his father, kind of tells on his brothers to his father. So his brothers hate him. Their resentment mounts. And when he's 17, they sell him to slave traders. He is trafficked. He's a victim of human trafficking. So sometimes we read these stories and it doesn't really settle. He is sold as a slave and he ends up in Egypt. So that's act one. Does not end very well. Act two is his life in Egypt. So his life in Egypt is kind of a roller coaster. And again, I'm going to kind of zoom through this. But he starts out as a slave working for a man named Potiphar. God gives him success. And Potiphar notices him and actually ends up promoting him to be in charge of his entire household. Things are looking up. Then things start looking down. Potiphar's wife takes an interest in him, makes some advances against him. He refuses. Then she accuses him of trying to rape her. And he ends up in prison. So now we're down at the bottom again. Joseph is falsely accused and ends up in prison. In prison, God gives Joseph favor with the prison warden, and eventually he ends up getting promoted and being put in charge of all the prison affairs. So again, starting to look up. In prison, he also continues to work on his prophetic gifts. He interprets dreams in prison. One of the people he interprets a dream for is the cupbearer to Pharaoh. And when this man is released from prison, Joseph says, like, put in a good word for me. And so things are maybe looking up, and then the cupbearer forgets him, and he languishes in prison for two more years. Roller coaster. Eventually, Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret. And at this point, it dawns on the cupbearer, oh, I know someone who can interpret dreams. And he remembers Joseph, and Pharaoh summons Joseph. If you've ever had a moment in your life when you feel like your whole future is resting on this moment, a job interview, Any of you who have proposed before, this is Joseph's moment. Chapter 41, 15. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I can interpret it. I can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph said. What is he thinking? This is his moment. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And so Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. And the dream, the meaning is that there will be seven years of abundance in Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph counsels Pharaoh, you should put someone in charge of your harvest for the next seven years to store up food for the lean years that are to come. And Pharaoh thinks for a minute, and then he says to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. 
You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So this story, Joseph, he's trafficked. He's falsely accused and thrown into prison. But because of God's presence and favor and Joseph's use of the gifts that God has given him, he ends up rising to this position of incredible influence in a foreign land in Egypt. So that's act two. Act three, his brothers come to Egypt. So the famine that um, Joseph predicts happens, and it happens all throughout the region. So his brothers in Canaan experience the famine as well. And his father, Jacob, because Egypt has food, because Joseph stored up food for seven years, they don't know it's Joseph, but his father sends the brothers to Egypt to buy food. And the brothers come to Joseph, and they don't know it's him to buy this food. Joseph recognizes the brothers, but he does not reveal himself. He even goes so far as to speak through a translator. He doesn't let them know that he can understand what they're saying. It's this crazy story. So it gets really twisty from here. There's lots of secret uh, sneaking off to weep in secret. Joseph is like so overwhelmed. He like tries to secretly return some of their money. He plays some weird tricks on them. It gets kind of twisty from here. But eventually, after a few interactions with them, he tells them who he is. And it says in chapter 45, verse 2, when he did this, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? He didn't even know. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And I imagine you would be terrified too if you sold your brother to a slave trader. But Joseph responds to his brothers with ridiculous grace and mercy. Not only does he forgive them, he promises to take care of them in Egypt. In chapter 45, verse 9, he says, Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Then he threw his arms around his brother, Benjamin, his baby brother, and he wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and he wept over them. So Jacob, the father, and all his descendants relocate to Egypt and survive the famine. Because of Joseph's influence, the nation of Israel and their future is literally saved and preserved. <clears throat> and the miraculous hand of God that's involved in this story is not lost on Joseph. Later on, after Jacob, the father, dies, the brothers start to get worried, like, I know he forgave us at first. Will he take it back now that our dad is dead? Joseph says this, and we're going to put it up on the screen. This is like a famous thing that is said in Scripture. Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is an 
epic ending to a story that should have been a disaster. This is epic. So what can we learn from this throwback? What does this ancient story teach us about the character of God and about our relationship with God today? So what does this reveal about God? Basically, ultimately, this story is a story that shows us that God is a redeemer. That in God's very character is this redemptive nature. This is what God does. Joseph's story is a redemption story. This is the kind of story they make movies about, right? The brother who was sold into slavery rises to influence in a foreign land and then in this bizarre twist of fate ends up saving his whole family who betrayed him. I mean, it's like perfect fodder for a movie, perfect. Humans, we love redemption stories. Some of the best art out there is built around the concept of redemption. Movies, um, Goodwill Hunting, Shawshank Redemption, Les Mis, these stories, we love them because they're stories of redemption. Usually in these stories, we see the protagonist changes in some way or overcomes all odds or works really hard and kind of works their own redemption. In this story, it's different because God is the redeemer. God is the one working redemption in Joseph's story, transforming it from something disastrous into something beautiful. One of the Hebrew words in the Old Testament that's used for the word redeem is parak, which means to tear loose. And I absolutely love this visual because what is happening in Joseph's story, we see God tearing loose the narrative of Joseph's life from the jaws of sin and evil, reclaiming it and using it for something entirely different. If Joseph's life was a newspaper heading, like if you boiled his life down to one newspaper heading, it should have been jealous brothers sell favorite son to slave traders. That should have been it. Instead, Joseph's headline is rejected son, shares wealth with estranged family, saves the entire nation. That is incredible. I have goosebumps telling it myself. It's beautiful what God does. He tears loose Joseph's story and puts it somewhere else. It's kind of like this artist. There's a picture here. This artist named Artur Bordalo, who makes beautiful works of art out of trash. This is a sculpture of a cute little bunny, and it's made out of trash. He rescues things from dumpsters and junkyards and alleys, and he repurposes them, not by fundamentally changing what they are. You can see there's a toilet kind of near his tummy there. He doesn't actually change what the thing is, but he weaves it into a larger work of art. To artists like Bordalo, nothing should be wasted, not even trash, because in his capable hands, it becomes raw materials for something beautiful. And that is like God. That is what God is like. God redeems Joseph's story not by changing the story, not by magically erasing all the years of pain, not by taking away the pain, not by discounting the pain, but by rescuing his story and placing it in the midst of a larger narrative. 
Nothing in Joseph's life is wasted. Not the betrayal, not the relocation to Egypt, not his time in prison, none of it is wasted. All of it becomes raw materials in the hands of an artist who is weaving together the story, not just of Joseph, but of his family and of the nation of Israel and ultimately of humanity. Nothing is wasted. Nothing in Joseph's life is trash. It is all raw materials in the hand of God who is writing something beautiful. That is insane. That is so powerful and that gives me so much hope. Joseph sees this and that's why he's able to say at the end, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You intended to harm me, but God. You intended whatever, but God. That is power. That is beauty. That is like nothing that we know in the world except God. What are the things in your life that feel like trash, that feel like wasted space, like unredeemable things you'd rather just forget about? Maybe it's some massive unexpected turn in the road, the loss of a job, some kind of failure in your life. Maybe it's years that you poured into a relationship that ended or years that you worked on a degree that you couldn't get a job with. Maybe it's some kind of suffering that feels purposeless or a situation that feels completely hopeless. Maybe you're in excruciating pain this morning and you can't think your way out of it. You can't figure out its purpose. Maybe someone has wronged you in a deep and profound way. Maybe you are wounded. Maybe you've suffered a lot. Maybe you've wronged yourself, or maybe there's something in your past that you feel like is unforgivable. Whatever it is that's coming to your mind, it is not trash. And it should not be wasted. It won't be wasted in the hands of God. Nothing in your life is beyond the redemptive power of God. There is no bubble of like, here is God's redemptive power. It can do this, but it can't do that. Nothing in your past, in your present, in your life is beyond God's ability to redeem. Nothing. How much do you believe that this morning? So what Joseph's story fundamentally reveals about God is that he's a redeemer that he's at work in every circumstance, even in the darkest depths of human sin. So as I read this story this week and thought about Joseph and meditated on his life and saw parts of my life in his life, it was crazy. The thing that stood out to me the most and what I started to wonder about is how does Joseph get to the place by chapter 50 where he's able to say this to his brothers. Most people who've been through what Joseph has been through end up bitter, cynical, vindictive, hard. But what we see in Joseph is that by chapter 50, he seems more humble, more thankful, more faithful, more generous, more kind than he was when we meet him. How the heck did that happen? That's what I wanna talk about right now. So Joseph 
did a couple things. And I think the first thing, and it's very simple, is that he remained open to God in Egypt. It's tempting to interpret suffering as the absence of God or the failure of God's power. A lot of times when we're in pain, we start to wonder, God, did you disappear? Where did you go? Or maybe you're not who you actually say you are. Or maybe I'm a fool and you're not even real. Maybe some of you have been there or are there this morning. It's difficult to understand how a good and powerful God can still be good and powerful and present with us when we're in pain. But it's even more difficult to understand that if our underlying assumptions about God are linked to our experience of God in times of abundance and favor and plenty. If that's all we know of God and we don't know what he's like in times of pain, we start to question. Are we open to the idea that God is still with us in times of suffering? Or is our only framework for God, does it equal happiness? When I'm happy, God is with me. When I'm not, I don't know. Do you know what intimacy with God feels like when you're bawling your eyes out or when you're screaming your lungs out? Do you have a framework in those moments for what intimacy with God looks like? Part of what I think puts Joseph in this place in chapter 50 is that he does. He has a framework for God's presence in suffering. He remains open to the idea that even though his life has just gone like so disastrously, God has not abandoned him. He recognizes God's presence everywhere in Egypt. Here's some of the places that I see that. He recognizes God's presence. So every success that he experiences in Egypt, in Potiphar's house, in the prison, with Pharaoh, he attributes that to God's favor. It's like this refrain, God's presence. And the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph. Wow, like he sees that. He also recognizes God's goodness. His second child, he had, had a couple, of, he had kids. And the second child was born in Egypt right before the famine. And uh, Joseph names him Ephraim, which means fruitful. And he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph recognizes God's goodness. Ultimately, Joseph experiences intimacy with God in Egypt. The profound things he says about God, the depth of his character that we see at the end of the story point to a deep and maturing relationship with God. Even Pharaoh sees this. He talks about Joseph being someone who he sees God's spirit within him. Other people see this too. Joseph is intimate with God, even in Egypt. So he stays open. The other way that I see Joseph staying open to God is that he appears to have let God use Egypt to form his character, to shape him. And the reason that I think this is that when he gets to Pharaoh's, um, when he gets the audience with Pharaoh, He's a completely different person from that immature prophet that we see in chapter 37. Far from bragging about his dreams and kind of recklessly using his gift, has grown in humil credit for the gift. He has matured. He has grown in humility and dependence on God. And I think the only way you do that is if you're open to God's, like, 
transformative work in your life. And so it's clear Joseph remained open to that even in Egypt. And so the question for us is how open are we to the possibility that God is still with us and still working even when we're in pain? Are we open to God using our pain to shape us? It is not a pleasant experience, but it is good. So five years ago, I experienced a significant loss in my life that plunged me into a season of intense grief. Some of the suffering that we experience on earth, things like death, won't be fully redeemed this side of eternity. But that doesn't mean that God's redemptive power like pauses until then. God is still at work. Romans tells us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God births good things out of painful things. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And that was true for me, that year of grieving, as I remained open to God's work. I wrestled that year with God a lot. A lot. My friend Sarah sitting here, <laughs> two rows in, knows how hard I wrestled that year. But I also began to recognize and experience God's presence with me in suffering that was different. It was not the same as my relationship with God in, in like seasons of joy. It was different, but it was just as intimate, if not more intimate. And I remember sitting at the Thanksgiving table that year with my family. Everyone goes around and shares something that they're thankful for. And I remember dreading this, like, what the heck do I have to be thankful for this year? My year sucked. I'm in pain. I have nothing to give thanks. And I went last, and everyone went around, and then this bizarre thing happened. This dissonant, bizarre experience. The first thing that came to my mind that I felt thankful for was this loss. And I shared that, and then I kind of inwardly like hated myself. Like, why am I thankful for this awful thing that happened? I'm still in pain. And yet I would never trade the intimacy with God that I gained that year, the intimacy with Greg that I gained that year, the way my friends carried me that year. I would not trade the things I learned about God. I wouldn't give it back. And the, the dissonant, like, weird feeling for me at that dinner table was like, am I looking at trash or am I looking at a work of art? And I don't even know. And that, to me, is evidence of the redemptive power of God at work in every circumstance. God is a redeemer. Are we open to the way that he brings good things out of death? So first, we stay open to God's work. And then second, we participate in our own redemption story. So God works his redemption throughout history, and God is the one at work. He's the redeemer, and yet he has always invited humans to participate with him. Always. The whole story of God is God working in and through humans. It's so crazy. But that's what's going on for Joseph. The entire redemptive narrative hinges on one choice. Joseph decides to forgive his family. If he had not forgiven his family, there would be no redemption story. 
He says this thing, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done, the saving of many lives. If Joseph had refused to forgive his family, no lives would have been saved, at least by Joseph. I'm pretty sure God seems to care a lot about this nation. He would have found another way to preserve Israel. But as Joseph participates in this story, Joseph's story is redeemed. Joseph's pain makes sense. Joseph has a completely different perspective. He sees his narrative placed into God's larger narrative. That would not have happened had Joseph not agreed to participate with God in this story. This is something that we talk a lot about at Sanctuary, partnering with God in the redemption of all things. I think how we are most used to thinking about that is we do things that are good for the world. Like we partner with God and doing good out there. What strikes me about this is that as Joseph says yes to God's larger redemptive narrative and as he aligns himself with God and acts just, you know, justly and mercifully and loving towards his family, his own story is redeemed as well. His story is redeemed. His family's story is redeemed. The nation of Israel's story is redeemed. Joseph's decision makes a difference. In what way might God be asking you to participate in your own redemption story? Maybe there's somebody like Joseph that you've been holding a grudge against and you need to forgive. What ridiculous story could be written if you chose the way of mercy and love over the way of vengeance and bitterness. Or maybe there's some kind of healing that God wants to unleash in your life and you've been resistant to it. You know what it is, but you're not willing. The redemption in your life could be there if you would say yes and allow God to work in your life. What's holding you back? Or maybe you have been sensing God's call into a relationship with him. Maybe you have never said yes to Jesus. You've been holding back. Your decision to say yes unlocks a redemption story that you, that's still being written for you. There are ways that we're invited to participate in a larger redemption narrative that actually impacts our own stories. As I close, I want to point us to the ultimate redemption story that Joseph's story is like a a giant arrow pointing to. So remember what I said about the newspaper headline, Joseph's life. Rejected son shares wealth with estranged family preserves entire nation's future. Who does that sound like? What story do you know that is the story of a favored son who was rejected by his human brothers and sisters, who was not just sold, but was put to death on a cross, who was left to languish, not just in a prison in a foreign land, but three days in the grave, This was the ultimate example of human brokenness and sin. 
Humans killed the Son of God. And yet, but God, you intended to harm me, but God. God in his mercy began to work even in the midst of that act, such that when we think about the cross today, we do not first think of that being the greatest failure of human brokenness. We see that as the redemptive climax of human history. How is that possible? Except for the fact that God tore that story loose from the narrative of sin and death and placed it in a larger narrative of life. That is the story of the gospel. And when we hit Jesus' human brothers and sisters, when we're in need, when we're starving and we come to him, does he reject us? No. He shares his wealth with us. He opens up those storehouses. He reconciles us to our family, to our father, and he welcomes us as long-lost brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. Joseph's story points to Jesus' story. Every redemption story points to Jesus' story. And Jesus is still writing redemption stories today in 2017. God is here. He is moving. He's speaking to some of you right now. We are going to uh, sing a final song and be dismissed. Um, But I want to encourage you, some of you need to receive prayer. If there's an area in your life where you feel like it's trash and you don't know what to do with that, I would love to invite you to go receive prayer. If you feel like you're in Egypt in your life, but you want God to work and form you through suffering, go receive prayer. If you're here today and you resonate with Kat's story and you want to become a Christian, you want to put your faith in Jesus for the, saint, for the first time, Go receive prayer, talk to me or Pastor Andrew after. Yeah, don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait. Yeah. Don't wait. I'm going to pray for us. We can stand and we're going to sing. But go receive prayer. If Jesus, we love you, is beating right now, that probably means he wants to talk to you. Jesus, we love you. We trust in you. Thank you that you rewrite our stories you will you you reset them you take our stories you tear them loose and you set them in your narrative god that is beautiful we worship you move among us holy spirit in jesus name